Welcome to Talking Feds, a roundtable that brings together prominent figures from government, law, and journalism for a dynamic discussion of the most important topics of the day. I'm Harry Littman. It was the week so many were waiting for, either with excited anticipation or fear and loathing. The Department of Justice shook up Trump world and the entire country, serving a search warrant on the former president's primary residence in Mar-a-Lago and carting away some 20 boxes of evidence of potential violations of the Espionage Act and two other federal statutes. As leaks trickled out over the days following the search and the warrant itself was unsealed on the government's motion at week's end, it became clear that the DOJ's primary mission had been to retrieve exceedingly sensitive documents that could do grave damage to national security. Documents that Trump had taken improperly when he left the White House and kept ever since, defying a subpoena and lying about them to the government. Whether we will see a criminal prosecution of the former president or others in his now small circle, which would typically follow such an aggressive law enforcement operation is much harder to predict. The search was only the most seismic of the many blows in a week of legal pummeling for Trump. He finally had to sit for a deposition in the New York civil fraud case and wound up taking the fifth to every question, a gambit that can be used against him at trial. The Trump Organization and its loyal-to-the-last CFO, Alan Weisselberg, were ordered to trial on criminal fraud charges. And there were tangible signs of progress in the multiple investigations into Trump's efforts to overturn the election results. To analyze the series of blows that rained down on the former president and how they changed not just his own prospects, but the national landscape, we have three of the country's finest commentators. And they are Aaron Blake, a political reporter for over 20 years, he currently serves as a senior political reporter for the Washington Post, where he writes for The Fix. He previously reported for his hometown Minneapolis Star Tribune and The Hill. Welcome back to Talking Feds, Aaron Blake. Thanks for having me, Harry. Alexi McCammond, a political journalist for Axios, where she covers the 2022 midterm elections and the progressive movement. Alexi began her career as a freelance political journalist for Cosmopolitan and a news editor for the online magazine Bustle. In 2019, she received the Emerging Journalist Award from the National Association of Black Journalists, and she was included in 2020 on Forbes magazine's very prestigious 30 Under 30 list. Thanks very much for returning to Talking Feds, Alexi. Thank you, thank you. Good to be with you. And Andrew Weissman, a professor of practice with the Center on the Administration of Criminal Law at the NYU Law School and a contributor for MSNBC. He served, as most everyone knows, as a lead prosecutor in Robert Mueller's special counsel's office, and he was before then the chief of the criminal fraud section in the Department of Justice. Before then, he was the general counsel for the Federal Bureau of Investigation, and in private practice, he won the largest financial industry regulatory authority arbitration award in history. Not least, I'm very pleased he is a good friend of the podcast and a regular guest. 
Andrew, thanks so much for joining us on this banner week that so taps into your expertise. Glad to be here. (laughs) Okay. Where to begin? Let's double back first to what seems like weeks ago, Monday, and the actual execution of the search warrant. Andrew, just quickly, I think you'd have a sense of this. How long would you say this was in the planning? And we know that the AG approved it. When would he have approved it if it was signed on the 5th, the Friday, and executed on the Monday? Well, I think I'd go back even further. I assume that the discussion about how to retrieve these documents has been something that's been ongoing for months. And the conversation with Merrick Garland and Lisa Monica would have included what have we done short of a search warrant to try to get these. I just think this is the kind of case where you would really try the least restrictive means. And that, I think, is something we still don't know exactly how that unfolded, particularly what happened between the reported June meeting in person with DOJ personnel at Mar-a-Lago and what happened between that and the search warrant. We have some idea that there was some evidence of obstruction. In fact, the warrant itself cites 1519, which is the section I know very well. Yeah, it's a very good question because the application given to the magistrate had to show that the probable cause was fresh. And to the extent there's been a lot of speculation that seemed solid to me that confidential informants were involved, I think not long before the execution of the warrant, they probably received yet new evidence that there was stuff there and he was sort of jerking them around. Or that it was still there. The material that they believed was still there had not been moved. We know the public details of the actual execution. Let's just talk about that briefly. Aaron and Alexi, Trump came out of the box as if like jackbooted thugs came in and riffled through Melania's clothes and maybe planted evidence. What do we know about the actual execution of the warrant by the agents? Well, we know that they took... 11 boxes of documents, right? Some classified as top secret, which obviously raises national security questions and concerns. Yeah. Folks talking about potentially looking at camera footage to see who might have been coming in and out of Mar-a-Lago while those documents were in the storage unit that former President Trump says was secured with two different locks. And we were reporting yesterday at Axios and other places, Washington Post, of course, was the first, that some documents have to do with nuclear weapons. Some documents today, it's reported, have to do with information about President Macron in France. So clearly things that former President Trump should not have taken from the White House. But of course, his lawyer says that he uh, declassified them all in his presence with the wave of a hand. Or in his mind. I'll try to play devil's advocate. I mean, there's probable cause we now know, not just for violations of the Presidential Records Act, not just for violations of the statute against mishandling of federal documents, but having to do with both espionage and destruction of records. Let me just go to Andrew's point. The one thing he is saying is, why why did they go to this trouble? We'd have given them anything they wanted. Is there 
any argument that you think would have come up at the Department of Justice that obviously he has stuff he shouldn't have. Obviously, this should have never left a secure location, but there's no real tangible indication he's going to do bad stuff with it. Or are we talking about documents that are so incendiary, you just can't ask that second question, just that they're out and about is itself too dangerous. They tried to get this voluntarily. They tried to get this through a subpoena. They were given representations that everything was turned over. They then had information that that's not true. And they then got boxes and boxes. And if you look at the inventory return, it includes confidential, secret, top secret, and top secret compartmentalized information. And numerous boxes in the top secret category, which is you know the most sensitive. I'll just second this crescendo. I was there. You know, I'm not sure I even ever saw such a document to even be in the same room with it. You need to surrender your cell phone, and it's kryptonite. And you know, the notion that he would treat it cavalierly is breathtaking. But of course, it's also kind of par for the course. There have to be people other than Donald Trump, for TS material to have made its way down there, there are people other than Donald Trump who are aware of that. Explain. Because first of all, it's rare to print that stuff out. And it's rare to be given it and have exclusive possession of it. You don't just pack that stuff up. And I don't think it's the president who is packing that stuff up. So the sources that you could imagine who are speaking are people who I think would have a lot of direct knowledge about this material. So this is just an extraordinary circumstance. So I just think this is one where they had to go in and get this. They had evidence of obstruction, which is why they have 1519 charged. The relevant part of 1519, I think, is the concealing, which is that they thought they were getting everything back. They tried to get everything back, and then they didn't. And just to get on my high horse for a moment, and now you have law enforcement officials who are protecting the United States from national security infiltration, and those people are being vilified and getting death threats, and their names are out there for doing their job protecting all of us. I want to come back to that for a second and ask you, Alexi, if the Republicans are really making an error. But we're going to talk a little bit. Will this lead to charges or won't? Now that I think about it, you've got to be right. And whoever those people are, Mr. X and Ms. X probably are petrified now because they could well be charged with the crimes that would not being able to plead the sort of ignorance that Trump might try. If I could pick up on that point, is interesting because the point that Andrew just made was one that was used in a different way by Mike Turner, the ranking member mm. of the House Intelligence Committee. Yep. His case on Friday morning was basically that these are not things that are generally in the Oval Office or in the president's possession. The argument throughout this process has been only about the idea that it's about having documents in possession. I think that if there's one thing, and I'm not a legal expert, but you guys are, that we see suggested in these warrants, it's that it's not just the physical 
having of the documents that is the issue here. There are apparently other issues. And so this entire debate that we've been having this whole week about can Donald Trump have these documents? Did he declassify these documents somehow? It might wind up kind of missing the point, at least judging by what we're seeing from the search warrant. I just can't help but think of, and I'm sure you all remember, I reported on this, I know others did, during the Trump administration when he was giving Jared and Ivanka the highest levels of security clearance after they had had it downgraded by the folks who are actually supposed to decide what level you have. And it just is another example of how cavalier he's been when it comes to these things. Either cavalier just doesn't have an understanding of the implications of giving that access and authority to folks, especially his own family. It is part of this broadest of all themes of the inability to distinguish between the interests of the government and their his own personal interests. But back to you, Aaron, it's like somebody obtained them. That's probably a crime. Somebody might have mutilated them or concealed them. That's probably a crime. So they've got everything now, including, by the way, if you saw the description of what they were looking for, Basically, any piece of paper in those three rooms would have qualified. Who knows what treasure trove they have going to the other crimes that they're looking at Trump about. Man, so much to talk about. Let's go back to the political angle briefly, Alexi, because you're covering kind of day to day the way these things are changing the sort of political landscape. The Republicans came out kind of reflexively with this scurrilous attack, I think, as Andrew properly pushes back on against the professionalism of the FBI. One of the reasons, I think, that Garland came out with his brief statement, but also just being completely on his side. Clear your decks, Mr. Garland. Clear your calendar. We're going to be investigating you. Are they too far out? Are they going to have to now that we know we're talking about things that any member ought to understand are, you know, incendiary, radioactive, are they going to have to pull back a little or will the MAGA crowd that supported them to date just be right on with their support of espionage and obstruction? Yeah. I mean, it's going to be a very hard position to walk back from. As you said, they came out of the gate just fully coalescing around Donald Trump and attacking the FBI, the DOJ. I did not think we would live in a world in which Republicans are calling to defund the FBI (laughs) and literally like making T-shirts off of that. But we were hearing from some Republicans on the Hill today who were saying basically that, like the things that other colleagues have been saying make us look unserious. And unserious, I feel like, is the most generous term for what it's looked like that they're doing. They're not only attacking these institutions that Donald Trump obviously continues to attack and amplify, but they seemingly don't care about what that could lead to, not just something like January 6th or some sort of attack like we saw in Ohio earlier this week, but, you know, post 2022, heading into 2024, they're laying the groundwork for just this idea of Americans fighting against the FBI, the justice system, as if the government is against you and you're being treated unfairly. It's setting up, I think, a really dangerous set of circumstances for what 2024 is going to look like. Setting up, it already happened, right? On It was a Wednesday that the guy who came into the FBI headquarters in Cincinnati was one, had been at January 6th, two, big on Trump's uh, social network, and three, was reacting directly to this. Yeah, but, but just to pick up on Alexi's point, it's one thing to go whole hog behind Donald Trump and to line up behind him. It's another to do that when we know next to nothing about this entire situation. And, yes. and that's what I've been talking about is since Monday night was I think that we have seen a situation in which 
Donald Trump has done objectionable things in the past, and a number of Republicans have come out right away and criticized the guy. And oftentimes, the party winds up coalescing, and it winds up being a liability for those people who spoke out initially. But there's always a line that can be crossed. And these Republicans have invested a tremendous amount of credibility and faith in a guy who hasn't always made their lives very easy. And so we're finding out new details about this now, but this is a huge investment of faith by these Republicans that they made earlier this week in Donald Trump. And now we're going to find out whether that faith is going to be rewarded. Let me stick with you, Aaron and Alexi, on this finding out of new details. We get the basic facts on Monday and then little things trickle out. The Post was out front, but the Wall Street Journal has been, I'd say, out front several times. Breibart on one occasion. So obviously, if you know the sources, you can't tell us. But give us a sense of what's been going on this week. What kinds of people have been giving up information? What reporters have been doing? We got information that there was a confidential informant that there was top-secret information, post reports on the nuclear stuff, that they tried to go the subpoena route. Who's gabbing? It's a good question. I I can't get into that with the Washington Post reporting, mostly because I don't know. Uh, My colleagues are doing some really great work on this. I analyze things on top of that, so I'm not joining in their glory at all. They do fantastic work. I think one thing to remember in all of this is that When these stories are coming out, there is a lot of assumption that these are leaks that are coming from law enforcement. Mm. That's not my assumption. How about you, Andrew? Is that your assumption? (laughs) Sorry, go ahead. We have seen throughout Donald Trump's six years as a political figure that there are people around Donald Trump who, for whatever reason, because they want to cozy up the journalists, because they maybe see something that they don't like happening, are willing to share this information. And so you know, it may not just be these people who are providing information to law enforcement. Maybe these people are also providing information to journalists as well. I don't think that we can neglect that portion of this as as a possibility. And I would point to an update that Breitbart put into their article today. As you pointed out, Breitbart broke some news today. They buried the most significant parts, but their update says all of this is technically irrelevant anyway, because Trump, who as president has original and absolute declassification authority, said he declassified all of those documents and then puts part of his quote from Truth Social. That's literally an update on their story. So um, I don't know their sourcing, but I'm sure they're getting spun. (laughs) I think we know the sourcing of the people who sent this to to Murdoch outlets and Breitbart. (laughs) And by the way, the congressman as well was obviously in some cahoots. I mean, that sophisticated people were able to discern what Trump knew by who was talking and what they were saying. I just like to comment on this whole issue of classification and declassification. Yeah, please. That is inconsistent with Trump's other defense, which is these documents were planted. So to me, it's like, what happened? They planted documents that were declassified. So he's got two different defenses here. One is they're planted, which is patently ridiculous because there's no evidence of that. And the other is that somehow some magic wand said these were declassified. Let's assume that they were declassified, even though the source of that information is highly suspect. The three statutes that are cited in the search warrant have nothing to do with whether the documents are classified or not. The obstruction statute doesn't matter whether they're classified or not. 793 doesn't matter whether it's classified or not. It just has something that affects the national defense. It does not have to be a classified document. And then 
there are other crimes that you could charge as well, which is 641, which is just taking government property, which could be any of these things. So I just don't think classification is going to be a defense to any of this if it were charged, let alone when we actually get to what the substance of the documents are, it would be ridiculous to think that the president would actually declassify documents that, if it's true, relate to nuclear capabilities. Although the ridiculous charge doesn't go very far with Donald Trump, I agree. But I'll just add, look, a lot of power, plenary power to declassify, but a document is not declassified till that stamp is on there. And moreover, to the extent the Post article is accurate, and there's some nuclear materials here, he actually doesn't have plenary authority. There's some involvement that is required with Congress. All right. I want to talk briefly about Merrick Garland's, uh, you know, there was a debate where reliably informed within DOJ whether to just say nothing. He came pretty close to saying nothing, but he did say something. And I think people found, well, that, here's my question to you. Was it enough? Was it effective? What grade did you give Garland for his 180 some words yesterday afternoon? Yeah, no, I mean, as a journalist, you want as much information as you can get as quickly as possible, and that's our bias. But I think we don't have to look far in the past to see how that can go awry. 2016, Jim Comey uh, earning a lot of criticism for what he said when the Clinton investigation closed in the summer and then disclosing new emails that were found a week and a half before the election. I think that this case was less sensitive than that. I think if Merrick Garland came out and had given us a little bit more detail, it wouldn't have been as sensitive because we're not that close to the election and Trump isn't on the ballot quite yet. But at the same time, I think what he did was he decided to put the ball in Trump's court. Donald Trump had not been releasing the search warrant, even though he could have. He said that we are moving to unseal this and emphasized twice in the filing that Trump can object to this. And so what we saw the next day was we actually finally got that search warrant. Garland has been criticized endlessly by the, the left on this because they don't think he's doing enough. But sometimes slow and steady is the way to do it. And sometimes not giving those people what they want initially is the way to have credibility towards the end of the process, because it doesn't look like you've been kowtowing to those people from the very start of the process. Yeah, he sure looks different now than he did, say, a week ago. Now, Andrew, you were general counsel of the FBI. You know about the value of keeping a close hold on information, but you were generally critical, right? In this situation, you thought that the department should have been a little bit more forthcoming. Do I have that right? And what's the reasoning? So first, I actually think that I would give the attorney general an A with one very small quibble. I just think he... He addressed a lot of things in a very short amount of time, and he, apart, was willing to unseal various stuff, which was going to do some of the speaking for him, but he couldn't talk about that until it was unsealed. Here are my quibbles. One, I actually am very interested to see what the department does with respect to the motion that I understand the New York Times has made to unseal the underlying affidavit so there are three documents. There's the search warrant, there's the inventory, and there's the underlying affidavit, which is, of course, the critical document. There's no question that that would need to be redacted. I can't imagine that that would be done wholesale. But I think it would be very useful to agree with those redactions to the New York Times 
motion. And I don't think it really should have taken the New York Times motion to do that. So I think I would have tried to get ahead of that a little bit. And also then, obviously, Donald Trump would have an opportunity to be heard. The other quibble I have, which is pretty minor, but it maybe comes from just having been in the department, Merrick Garland said, you know, we speak only through our court filings. We don't hold press conferences. Um, there are good and sufficient reasons having to do with civil liberties and protecting our ongoing investigations. And I believe that's true generally. But if you listen to what he said, he did, in fact, give information that went beyond that. In other words, if it was totally the case that he was going to stick to that strictly, he shouldn't have said there was an attorney on site, that we gave a copy of it to Donald Trump, that we generally try lesser means. In other words, he, in the two minutes, if you look at all of the things he said other than we filed a motion to do this, it was all signaling responses to things that had come up in the press, meaning, which I don't fault him for. In other words, I think that's useful, but I don't think you can then say, but I'm only tethered to what we do in court, because in fact, he wasn't tethered to what he was doing in court. For the sake of clarity, I just think he should have said that those that's generally what we do, but there is a place for educating the public. But weren't the revelations, and this is for anyone, I mean, they were, A, I think pretty general, and B, process-driven. So the Comey thing was objectionable precisely because he gave his perfectly irrelevant subjective impression about the level of guilt of Hillary Clinton. Garland just said, we tried to do this and that, and he talked a little about process. I totally agree with you. I'm not in any way saying that what he did was comparable in any way, shape, or form to Jim Comey. My point is that you really can't start the press conference by saying, I am only tethered to X, and then give these little bells and whistles. I just think it would have been better to just educate the public about what general principles you do, but why here you're going to address certain things. Again, as I said, that's a minor quibble, and yeah. it has more to do with having been in the Justice Department I have this real view, which is I sort of viewed the public as your client. And that means you either had to, when you spoke, have complete candor or you shouldn't say anything at all. And so I just thought that was, again, small quibbles. And in general, I would still say it was an A. Yeah. Even though it was so brief and then he left, this might be showing my own bias. And I love the guy and I've worked with him a long time. But just as things have gone on, Trump is left with like, Giuliani and Alex Jones and Roger Stone, guys who look like carnival villains. And, you know, Garland stood up there and just he just looked like, you know, a judicious person of integrity and rectitude. I think even if I didn't speak English, I'd want to be on that guy's side. It's now time for our sidebar feature which explains some of the issues and relationships that are prominent in the news. The investigation in Fulton County of possible criminal violations of Georgia election law is being done through a special grand jury that the court has specially constituted. What is a special grand jury? To explain, we're really pleased to welcome Kate Burton, 
a Tony and Emmy nominated actress who's received great acclaim for her roles as Ellis Gray in the medical drama Gray's Anatomy and as Vice President Sally Langston in the political thriller Scandal. So I give you Kate Burton on the special grand jury. A special grand jury sitting in Fulton County has issued subpoenas with court approval, summoning seven members of Donald Trump's circle to testify. What is a special grand jury? Special grand juries exist in many jurisdictions, including the federal system, and they serve different functions. In Georgia, special grand juries can be appointed to focus on a single topic, in contrast to regular grand juries, which hear hundreds of different matters, from petty offenses to murders. Like regular grand juries, they serve in secret and can issue subpoenas. Unlike regular grand juries, special grand juries cannot return indictments. Rather, they investigate their topic and make recommendations to the district attorney, who then decides whether to seek an indictment from a regular grand jury. Moreover, regular grand juries only serve for two months, whereas special grand juries serve for as long as authorized by the court. In the Fulton County investigation, the district attorney, Fonnie Willis, requested the impanelment of a special grand jury in order to compel testimony from resistant witnesses. The local court agreed and authorized the special grand jury to sit for 12 months. The special grand jury then sought subpoenas from the seven people, which include Senator Lindsey Graham and five of Trump's lawyers. The court approved the requests, finding specifically that each of the seven was a, quote, material and important witness, unquote. Georgia law also permits a grand jury to subpoena a person who is a target of an investigation. That is someone that the prosecutor is seriously contemplating indicting. That doesn't happen in the federal system. Those people must receive appropriate warnings and admonitions. And of course, they can choose to exercise their Fifth Amendment right not to testify. But if they decide to go ahead and testify, their testimony can be used against them. For Talking Feds, I'm Kate Burton. Thank you very much, Kate Burton. Kate comes by her acting excellence naturally. She's the daughter of British actors Richard Burton and Sybil Christopher. All right, it is now time for a spirited debate brought to you by our sponsor, Total Wine and More. Each episode, you'll be hearing an expert talk about the pros and cons of a particular issue in the world of wine, spirit, and beverages. Thanks, Harry. Today's spirited debate centers around a recipe for a timeless cocktail from the 1800s, the old-fashioned, where the question still stands whether to use rye whiskey or bourbon. The original recipe calls for bourbon, so we've already scored one point for bourbon there. As for the specific brand, the rule of thumb is if you wouldn't sip it by itself, it has no home in the glass of your old-fashioned. In our other hand, we've got rye whiskey which introduces a peppery bite that's a little bit spicier and less sweet than bourbon. Again, if we take a note from history, we learn that the original recipe called for sugar. It was actually first defined in print as spirit, bitters, sugar, and water. So you could definitely supplement the less sweet rye option and use simple syrup instead of a muddled sugar cube for a balanced twist. The jury's still out when it comes to a verdict in the rye versus bourbon debate, 
But we do know this. Whichever one you go with, you'll want something at least 90 proof or higher so your drink stands up to dilution from the melting ice. From all of us here at Total Wine & More, cheers to bourbon and rye. Thanks to our friends at Total Wine & More for today's A Spirited Debate. All right, let's flash forward to now. So in the last couple hours, we've learned what's on these documents. Maybe Trump got kind of outplayed and they had to be revealed. It's little snippets, nothing like the affidavit. But what do you think was significant about the papers that were revealed, the manifest and the warrant? The pardon for Roger Stone. (laughs) (laughs) You want to keep that. Yeah, I'm curious, like, what the purpose of that was, if it's going to be framed or what. (laughs) But that obviously stuck out. And and Macron, too. You know, it's like, what's uh, going on there? This is like the one thing that I've seen across all the different early reports here was that it was something about the president of France. And it feels like, I don't know if that was one of the classified documents or what, but what's the significance of that? And why are we all highlighting this? It just seems really interesting to me. And this is after he'd already coughed up the keepsakes of the note from Obama. The thing, So this is the thing he really wanted as the deepest level. And Mr. Former Prosecutor, I'll say that the presence of the anti-shredding statute really caught my eye. What did that indicate to you? Yeah, 1519 and the TSSCI, the compartmentalized information of which they were... Right. We talked about that up front, just how incredibly high level the... Yeah. Um, Those two things stood out to me. 1519 is an obstruction statute. It was actually with DOJ and input. It was passed post Arthur Anderson to remedy a number of the problems in the extant obstruction statutes that were actually the subject of the Supreme Court decision. Actually part of Sarbanes-Oxley, right? Yep. So I'm actually really familiar with it because obviously we'd been dealing with it. Beryl Howell, actually, the current uh, chief judge of the D.C. District Court, was on the Hill at the time, and she worked on it. So that statute is a broad obstruction statute. And to me, it confirms this issue of what was happening during the time that the Department of Justice was trying to get this information short of resorting to a search warrant, that there have to be discussions maybe emails and letters where there are representations about what was turned over and what was not turned over, you would imagine that what could have been said was we've turned everything over or everything that's classified. So to me, that is where you get the idea of concealing, which is what 1519 addresses. And none of the other statutes would have covered that. Is that right? You take stuff away. That's what the other statutes are. And this is you conceal. Yeah, exactly. I can't remember if it's one of the other statutes. I think it does have a concealing component. But in any event, I had never thought prior to seeing the warrant that this would lead to criminal charges in and of themselves. I could see it maybe getting added into an indictment of the former president if he was being charged with other crimes. But I didn't think it would be a standalone. I still generally think that, and again, I don't know enough about the underlying facts here, but I suspect if we saw the underlying affidavit, that the combination of obstruction and the content of the compartmentalized information 
to me, throws this way beyond what happened in the General Petraeus case, which I was at the FBI at the time that happened. The obstruction here could be far more significant, and the nature of the documents could also be far more significant. And that was a controversial idea to have a misdemeanor there, not because people thought, oh, it's a choice between no charge and a misdemeanor. The issue was that many people, myself included, thought it should be a felony, given the nature of it and given the fact that it was a general in the United States. It makes it more culpable, given that position. So I do think that that precedent is going to weigh on somebody like Merrick Garland. He was a judge for so many years, and I think precedent will be important. Yeah, I mean, he considers horizontal equity, right? We did it with him. How can we do it differently? But it's been a hell of a week on just this point. When it first happened, I think I got kind of ahead of my skis thinking, hmm, you know, this could be a freestanding charge And when you think about the other possible charges against him, which you would look to if you're doing something so monumental as charging a former president, you get out the calendar and it's not hard with a little stalling on his part to be in the shadow of like 2024, not 2022. But this is the kind of charge that could be freestanding. But then the week goes on and it seemed tolerably clear this was first and foremost. They had to show probable cause there was a crime, but first and foremost, we must get the documents back. But now you've seen the big list. They got a lot of stuff that they're certainly not going to put just in the back now that they have the documents and they're going to go through and sort of two sets of eyes, a national security set, but a criminal prosecution set. So it sets up the possibility of a prosecution, though, what would that mean for the, you know, is it two other grand juries that are sitting If Trump were prosecuted under the Presidential Records Act because he took something, people would say, give me a break. Espionage, destruction of classified documents, obstruction, etc. Is that weighty enough to sell as a prosecution of the former president of the United States? Any thoughts? I think when the Republican pushback began very early in this week, the pushback to the pushback was like, oh, the Justice Department has to know what they're getting into by going after a former president. This decision would not be undertaken lightly. I don't think we should necessarily assume that everybody involved in this has the best judgment when it comes to those things. But I think that the lessons of the past four to six years are going to be clear to anybody who undertakes something like this. You know, Merrick Garland talks about everybody being equal under the law and nobody gets special treatment. It's a nice sentiment, but the people involved have to recognize that if you serve a search warrant at Mar-a-Lago and you come up with nothing or it winds up being just a matter of a love letter to Kim Jong-un that you come back with, that's not going to look good. So I'm obviously not in their heads, but you have to believe that they think this is almost definitely going to lead to some place. I mean, they knew they were crossing the Rubicon, right? (laughs) If they didn't, they're idiots. Um, They (laughs) They're not idiots. I'll stipulate. (laughs) And from there, you know, the question is, what on earth could possibly change this setup we have, which is that no matter what, 40 to 45 percent of the country says, no, not too far from me. We don't know what that is, but I do think it's a little bit different of a setup now that Trump is out of office. It's not just, is this enough to get an indictment or is this enough to turn 
large segments of the Republican Party against Trump. It's also Republicans who are currently deciding whether they want to line up behind this guy moving forward outside of the office in 2024 with a guy, governor in Florida, who's looking like he could very well challenge Trump here. So that's politics and that's not the goal of the Justice Department. But all of these things matter when it comes to how this is ultimately received. It's not about kicking the guy out of office. It's about whether the party is going to move forward with him as their standard bearer. You know, two quick things on that. One, we know Donald Trump views legal problems as PR opportunities. And fundraising. And fundraising. And so we're kind of seeing his mental and rhetorical gymnastics play out in real time as he's trying to find whatever sticks. Secondly, we, for Axios, do focus groups around and battleground states. Obviously, they're not statistically significant, but it's been fascinating. Wisconsin, Arizona, and Florida over the last three months, folks who voted for Donald Trump in 16, Biden in 20, a mix of Republicans, Democrats, independents, across all three states, all three groups over the last three months, the majority of these folks said that Trump should face criminal prosecution for his role in January 6th. And now they're saying that this FBI search was warranted, justified, and that what he did would constitute a serious crime. So I don't know for the folks who voted for him again in 2020, as Aaron was saying, I think there's 45% of the country who has decided that they're going to live in this alternate reality that is narrated by Donald Trump. But there are clearly some folks who I think have been watching the January 6th hearings, open to learning more, kind of realizing after this deluge of information just how bad things were when he was president and how dangerous the precedent can be if he is not held accountable. And we could go on this for hours. I'd like to. This was a week where, you know, he took it on the chin from five or six different directions. Let's at least touch on the New York AG civil investigation where he went in and they peppered him with questions for four hours, five hours, and he took the fifth to each and every one. Aaron, you wrote about his hypocrisy pleading the fifth. And of course, there's also plenty of hypocrisy in his pleading of the documents. It's kind of been his calling card. And as Alexi says, it's, you know, nothing they they won't forgive him for. What about the political risk now that he pleaded the fifth and you have the setup of all the times he said pleading the fifth is for criminals? Yeah. So in a civil proceeding, you know, pleading the fifth can be used to make an adverse inference. And the judge who has been dealing with this case noted that back in February when Trump's lawyer previewed that this day would be coming where the former president would be pleading the fifth in all likelihood. And so I think as far as the civil proceedings, you know, is the civil proceeding what ultimately matters here? Probably not. I think the criminal investigations that Trump faces are what's important. And that's why he did this even at the expense of potentially this being used against him in the civil proceedings. And that's probably the smart thing to do. But it doesn't change that this is the guy who has said over and over again that pleading the fifth is what guilty people do. It's what the mob does. And so it's everyone's right to do this, but you also have a right to be judged against your past words. And if this is how he indeed viewed taking the fifth back then, what does that say about where we are today? I'll just add, I'm not sure that the action itself is inconsequential. Think about what the evidence will be. It'll be all bad stuff for him. And then augmented by his saying, each time I take the fifth, well, actually, same answer is how he cagily put it. And they'll be able to argue to the jury, you know what? Hard to see much of a defense case there. That could be a very, very big fine. It could really redound to the detriment of the kids. Just big trouble in Trump land for the whole week. All right. Let me ask you, Alexi, one more quick thought. 
we've had different junctures, including during his presidency, when people in the Republican Party have thought, we got to take him out. But is there anyone in the party who can actually be the Barry Goldwater figure or who could, you know, take the metaphoric walk and tell him, Donald, you've got to, like, stop killing us here? Or even if they all conclude that, are they, are they stuck with him? I think the latter. I haven't seen anyone suggest that they're going to act in a way that's ditching Donald Trump. I hesitate to even call this an off-ramp. This feels like, like if you're still on the Trump train, I don't think you can get off. I think like you are stuck at this point and you like are seeing the off-ramp as you're passing by. These folks in Washington are literally doing anything they can to defend him in the most ridiculous of circumstances, as Aaron said earlier, before they even had information about what happened. They don't care about the facts. They care about their feelings. And that's how they're going to continue operating, especially if they think it'll help them in 2024. All right. A final legal question, then we'll go to Talking Five. Andrew, without spelling out how it will work, when might we know whether there are going to be criminal charges that eventuate from the warrant? Or when might we know that there won't be? Well, it is conceivable that the attorney general could announce that there won't be to sort of put that to bed. And there is a policy that allows when there is a very public investigation that the department can say publicly that it's been closed. And there might be strategic and sort of ethical reasons to do that. My own view is that it's much more likely that it will await whether they make a case on January 6th because you could imagine additional charges then being added in. And it deals with the precedent issue that we talked about of of General Petraeus and other people and trying to treat him comparably. I would just add one quick thing. Another thing that happened this week that's not great is that there is the criminal case. It's going to start in October in Manhattan, not just against Weisselberg, but against the Trump Organization. So the Trump Organization is facing not just civil liability in connection with the New York Attorney General, as is Donald Trump, but the Trump Organization is facing criminal liability and will go to trial in October. All right. We just have a minute left for our final feature of Talking Five, where we take a question and each of us has to answer in five words or fewer. And today's is, what will Trump do when he finds out the identity of the confidential informant in his ranks? Five words or fewer. Post something on Truth Social. (laughs) Okay. I was trying to choose between I never knew the guy and that guy got me coffee. (laughs) (laughs) I don't have a funny answer. I think he's going to do what he did with Michael Cohen. So vilify like Michael Cohen. Mm, It's kind of tough. I'm torn between two directions, but I guess I'll go Tarantino. He'll go medieval on them. All right. I wish we had several hours to keep talking about this very momentous week, but that's all the time we've got. Thank you very much to Aaron, Alexi, and Andrew. And thank you very much, listeners, for tuning in to Talking Feds. If you like what you've heard, please tell a friend to subscribe to us on Apple Podcasts or wherever they get their podcasts. And please take a moment to rate and review this podcast. You can also now subscribe to us on YouTube, where we are posting full episodes 
talking books, and bonus video content. You can follow us on Twitter at TalkingFedsPod, and you can look to see our latest offerings on Patreon, where we post bonus discussions with national experts about special topics exclusively for supporters. Submit your questions to TalkingFeds.com contact, whether it's for Talking 5 or general questions about the inner workings of the legal system for our sidebar segments. Thanks for tuning in, and don't worry. As long as you need answers, the Feds will keep talking. Talking Feds is produced by Olivia Henriksen. Sound engineering by Matt McArdle. Rosie Don Griffin and David Lieberman are our contributing writers. Production assistance by Laurel Feldner, Kalena Tano, Emma Maynard, and David Emmett. Thanks very much to Kate Burton for explaining this special grand jury. Our gratitude, as always, to the amazing Philip Glass, who graciously lets us use his music. Talking Feds is a production of Delito LLC. I'm Harry Littman. Talk to you later. <laughs>